With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's trade deadline discussion month, essentially, here. The NBA trade deadline is coming up at the beginning of February. And I think it's worth starting to dive in and sort through, A, why we haven't seen a trade so far. It's very rare that we get into this season where the only move is essentially a cost-cutting measure with Noah Vonley and Gorgie. Was Gorgie Jang involved in that? He got caught. He just got cut. He got to facilitate it. Yeah. So essentially, it's very rare for us to get this far into the season without that. And Danny LaRue is here. And Danny and I want to talk about essentially what's going on on the trade market. And then we have a big list of names that we want to dive into and talk about how interesting some of these players could be, how some of these players could swing a title title race, given how cluttered everything is across the NBA. And just generally try and break down what's going on across the league in terms of the NBA trade market. Danny, what's going on, buddy? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. And this is a very hard trade deadline to parse. And I think kind of the place that we could start is I like to set out the table, which is how and why trades happen, which is usually you have this situation where you have good players on teams that don't necessarily need good players, even if they want them. And then you have teams that want more good players. And so typically the flow is talented player goes to team that could use them more in the immediate in exchange for young players or draft picks to facilitate. And one of the problems right now is that I'm not sure the good that there are teams that aren't sure if they're good or not. And there are teams that don't, even if they identify that, that don't want to trade their best players because they want to keep them because they're good players. Yeah, it's interesting. It feels like almost just a simple market economics problem to me where there are too many buyers and not enough sellers. Right. And I think a big, reason for why that's the case is the play-in tournament at the end of the day right without the play-in tournament right now we'd be looking at a situation where there are more teams that almost certainly would be out of the playoff picture uh you know pulling up the standings now across the league like in the eastern conference miami is the eight seed they're 21 and 20 uh they are three and a half games ahead of the toronto raptors four games ahead of the washington wizards the Raptors are currently, you know, just a game out of the play-in tournament, essentially a game and a half out of the play-in tournament. So that's a big difference. Three and a half versus one and a half. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually is whenever there are other teams in that range and you're competing and trying to move up against everyone in the West. The West is just such a cluttered mess that everyone should be in the mix. And I actually do feel like that parity plays a significant role in why there are more buyers and sellers. The Western conference right now, there are only seven and a half games between the first seed and the 10th seed. That is uncommon, abnormal, does not happen all that often in terms of this season being, uh, 
they're typically better teams than the 27 and 13 Denver Nuggets. Typically you'll get like a 30 and 10 or something in there. Uh, on top of it, you just look through that Western Conference picture. The Los Angeles Clippers are sitting there in the sixth seed at 21 and 21. The Utah Jazz are the 11 seed right now. The Los Angeles Lakers are the 12 seed right now. They're a game and a half out. The Oklahoma City Thunder are a game and a half out of the eight seed right now, which could mean they could get a home play-in game. The parity, I think, is a really big part of why there are more buyers and sellers. But ultimately, what the end result is in there being more buyers and sellers is why you start seeing all of these exorbitant asking prices for guys like John Collins, where there was a report earlier today that I saw that you know the John Collins asking price right now is somewhat similar to the Donovan Mitchell asking price. Do I buy that? No, I don't. I'm just going to be real with it. Like maybe they asked for it, but like they don't expect to get that. But more than anything, I think that what's important to note with that is that when there are more buyers and sellers, the market ends up believing that they can go to other teams and try to raise the price and just try and like work it up, work it up, work it up as much as they can. So why not start as high as possible and just go from there? For sure. And and the other part of this story is that they're the surefire sellers. So the teams that aren't particularly trying to focus on the play in and all that. And also those teams aren't particularly loaded with players that can help. So, you know, Eric Gordon is one that stands out depending on what the Charlotte Hornets do and how we're classifying them because they missed Lamella ball for so much of the season. They certainly have players that could help out other teams if they're interested, but like the, the Pistons and the the Spurs and depending on how you want to classify the Thunder, like I think the guys they have that are good, they want to keep. And so we've already kind of seen that move for them. And so instead it is teams like the Bulls, like the Raptors, like to some extent the Utah Jazz that are in this mix that need to decide if they want to stay in this mix or if they want yep. to tr- fundamentally change trajectories. And Ultimately, I think that one thing that could play a role in this gridlock breaking is how valuable the number one overall pick is this year. Uh, Victor Wembanyama being a generational talent, being someone that every NBA team covets at an exceptionally high level, I would venture the number one overall pick in this draft is probably a top 10 asset league-wide right now. Right, Danny? You, you kind of it's have probably it's probably up there, especially with the cost control that you get. And so you get that right. player for four years on a rookie scale contract, and then theoretically you have match rights. And so you and you've we've basically never seen a player who had, was max caliber just not take that. And certain people, including a certain person who's on this podcast years and years ago, argued Anthony Davis shouldn't do that, but he did. And so there are <laughs> there are lots of there are lots of circumstances that can board. So if you think if, if you get the number one pick and you think Wembenyama is that generational player, you're buying yourself, you're getting the opportunity to have him for at least eight seasons. And that's phenomenal. Yeah, that's absolutely enormous. And I think that over these next two weeks, particularly, it's kind of like, you know, not cutting time where you got to be able to make a decision here on realistically, do we want to stay in the playoff mix or do we think that we want to get in the Wembenyama mix? Because if you get to the point where you're 50 games into the season, because we're going to be pretty close for some teams to that 50 game mark in two weeks, and you're sitting there and you have 18 wins or so, 
it's probably time to go. It's probably time to bounce on some level and try and figure out how we can best position ourselves along with the Rockets, along with the Hornets, along with teams like that that are down near the bottom, the San Antonio Spurs certainly as well. And maybe not maximize the potential to get the number one overall in the draft lottery odds, but to end up maybe somewhere like fifth or sixth, where honestly the difference between number one and number six in terms of your chances to get the number one overall pick now that there has been NBA draft lottery reform is only 14% if you are the worst team in the NBA versus 9% if you are the sixth worst team in the NBA. Currently, the sixth worst team is the Washington Wizards. They're 17 and 24. Frankly, like if Utah wanted to drop down into that spot, they're currently 20 and 23. They are two games ahead of Washington. It's easier to lose games and like drop down the order than it is to spike up the order, given how competitive teams are trying to make the playoffs. A team like Utah is still very well positioned to get into that like bottom six, bottom five range if they really, truly wanted to. That's also one of the weirdest things about the play-in is that the margin between being viable in the play-in mix and be it getting lottery odds, especially this year, are pretty good. We've seen the Thunder and the Magic, and Magic have been winning more recently, be more competitive. And so you can fall further you can build more draft equity however the problem is you're going to eventually get more competition for that and so generally there is an early mover advantage when it comes to maximizing your draft position at depending on how aggressively you're going to go for the tank and that's going to be something to watch here as well is is there a team that kind of goes there earlier and the like in terms of the assets you get back, it can change. It depends on this on the specific circumstance. But in terms of draft equity, like what you get on your own pick, generally speaking, I would argue moving earlier is better than moving later. I agree. So let's go to the team that I think honestly kind of holds the keys to this trade deadline. If they decide to make this shift into maybe not necessarily like full-scale Wembenyama sweepstakes, but potentially selling some players that have upcoming decisions contractually. That's the Toronto Raptors. The Toronto Raptors currently are sitting at 17 and 23. They are only two and a half games out of the fifth worst team in the league. They are currently only two and a half. No, they are three and a half games out of the top eight currently. They also have a lot of contractual decisions coming up. Pascal Siakam is signed for a year and a half still, I believe. Right, Danny? Yes, Pascal Siakam. So he all of this year and then next year, but they can theoretically sign an extension in the offseason. How rich an extension depends on whether he makes an All-NBA team this year. Right. Fred Van Vliet has a player option for next year, right around 20 to $21 million. Yes, and I expect him to opt out even if the annual value is similar just to get secure a long-term contract. You see that a lot. Van Vliet, Siakam, for both of them, this is their age 28 season. Yeah, Fred Van Vliet not having the best season of his career, shooting 38% from the field, 33% from three. 
He is still averaging 19 and six. He is still seen as a hard nosed defender who gets around screens at a high level, really, really fights and really is a high level competitive player that would be valuable to a winning team as a lead guard next to maybe a superstar such as Pascal Siakam or maybe some other places, but would be very valuable on the trade market if he hit the trade market and frankly should hit free agency this offseason. There's just no... I've seen some consternation about the fact that there was a report he turned down $114 million. He 100% should turn down that deal, right? Like, there's just no reason to take that, in my opinion. Well, there's there's also the possibility, like, will that offer be out there or something similar? And he'll also know a lot more about not only where the Raptors are, but where other potential suitors are. And so yeah. you commit in that circumstance, then you're committing to the Raptors, and you're you're not necessarily even, I mean, think about this in terms of various things, you're committing to them having your contractual rights. That doesn't mean they're going to keep you forever. He can't negotiate a no trade or anything like that in terms right. of um, in on an extension. Other, I, I'd right. have to run through his eligibility else. Otherwise, we don't need to do that on this podcast. Right. Gary Trent Jr. is the name that I feel like seems the most reasonable and likely uh, of a potential trade target for other teams. He has an expiring deal potentially because he has a player option for next year at $16 million. Guys who are six foot six and can shoot and have reasonable defensive value get paid more than $16 million in the current NBA. He is going to get more than that on the free agency market. So he, I, I can't see him opting into that player option. Can you, Danny? I would be surprised. I mean, it would presumably, unfortunately, be injury-based. But yeah, that would be a surprise. And then, I mean, the other one I'm sure you're going to get to him is OG Ananobi. Ananobi, his contract runs an extra year. So his player option is in the 24-25 season. But reasonable expectation would be that he will opt out at that juncture. So functionally the Raptors are sure they'll have him for a year and a half. And then after that TBD. Yeah. Gary Trent Jr. Is averaging 18 points shooting 37% from three, 44% from three. He's on a bit of a heater right now as well. Uh, I, I, there's no way he doesn't get like 480 on the trade or on the free agency market at the very least. I feel like if he was to hit the free agency market. There aren't that many teams with cap space, but it does feel like at least one of them would be interested. And then the other thing with a player like Gary Trent, oftentimes somebody making in the $20 million range, it's actually easier to negotiate a sign-in trade because they're matching salaries more than that. It's actually often harder to do one more at the max because that involves so much outgoing salary. But teams have 15 to 20 million floating around. There are going to be a lot of teams that aren't going to be all the way into the tax. So yeah, I, I could, I don't think it's a certainty, but I think it's definitely above 50%. And you mentioned Ananobi and Ananobi has a contract next year for $18.7 million. Look, everyone has seen the reports about people think OG Ananobi could fetch a Donovan Mitchell type package. If you believe that, I don't know if he'd fetch quite that much, but he would fetch a King's ransom as one of the best defensive players who very clearly has real offensive upside. I think he's still maybe not scratching the surface anymore, but he is really still improving offensively every single season using his physicality, becoming a better ball handler, uh, really becoming a better scoring threat in general. Uh, those guys get paid $35 million a year, just straight up. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm more I'm more skeptical of OG's market value in terms of not a trade, but free agency, because if you're not a high volume scorer, generally speaking, I mean, we saw Mikhail Bridges like I mean, I think I think the Suns are very happy with Mikhail Bridges contract, but 
the difference yeah. with the difference with Ananobi is I think that he could that he could do a little bit more. He's at least been asked to do a little bit more offensively. And the league is getting better at appreciating what those players do. And so the the hope is that there is a market correction that needs to happen and that correction would benefit Ananobi. So with the way that the salary cap is rising and the way that Ananobi, like you said, does more than Mikhail Bridges, just straight up. Also, Mikhail signed an extension off of a rookie deal as opposed to OG Ananobi, who will be hitting unrestricted free agency. Exactly. I can't see a world where he doesn't crack $30 million a year, just straight up. Like he's he's going to be pretty close to a 20-point-per-game scorer that is a top-five perimeter defender in the league, right? Well, and Sam, that gets into a point that I actually think detracts and why I disagree a little bit with the Donovan Mitchell package framing. And of course, Masai Ujiri can ask for whatever he wants is because if that's what OG Ananobi is going to get, then an extension framework is likely insufficient because the league's extension rules are still broken. You can't get that much of a raise unless you qualify as a designated veteran and OG Ananobi unlikely to do so. So that means you're you're it's harder for to negotiate an extension for him and that means we're kind of more in like 2015-16 land where you hope to bring him back if you're acquiring him by trade but you don't have certainty and so I actually think that tamps down Inobi's trade value at least a little bit because you have to deal with the risk of well he's going to have to resign and no matter how certain you feel I mean you could go back to Dwight Howard at a couple of moments in time like there's there's nothing certain in the NBA. That's part of why we love it so much. Yeah, and that's exactly why I wanted to dive into kind of why I think Ananobi's market is just much higher than what his number is next season. There just is not an extension number on the table, I think, for him. It is kind of similar to other situations that we see currently around the league. Like Kyle Kuzma, I think, is probably not really on the table for an extension. He's going to get more from someone this offseason, in my opinion, even if it's via sign and trade. The other part of this is that teams are getting better at making the salary cap uh, a bit more of a fungible uh, notion with sign and trades as opposed to just certainly needing salary cap space to sign guys. So if you want to make machinations, there are more uh, intelligent cap people that work across the league now that are able to work within the frameworks of the CBA to get guys paid and bring them to different organizations potentially if they hit unrestricted free agency. So that sets the table for what is essentially, in my opinion, the most important month realistically of the post Kawhi Raptors uh, little run here. Like you maybe make a case that the most important month was June 2021 when they drafted Scotty Barnes. Like if you believe in Scotty Barnes as like a top 10 future NBA player, sure, right? Like I, I buy that as a case. But in terms of their future planning, because they have all of these decisions that will be coming to a head in the next 18 months, this is kind of the time where they could cash in most if they want to make a substantial roster change to rebuild around Scotty Barnes, if they do really see him as the one untouchable player on this roster. And I talked about Scotty on the last podcast. You can get my takes on that later on. Ultimately, I think that is what their decision is. How do we build around Scotty Barnes? Do we want to continue down the road with guys like Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, Gary Trent, 
and move forward that way. How do you feel about that, Danny? Because I think I've kind of talked about this on the podcast previously, and I'll get into it after, but where are you at on this Raptors core and how are you kind of envisioning what they will do versus what you think they should do? It's such a challenging decision. And this is honestly more of an ownership decision than it is a general manager, though Masai Ujiri can convince ownership to do something if should he feel very strongly. And the reason why is because you have to identify, I think it's more about the present than the future. It's just, are we at a place as the Raptors to like that? We want to keep this going because I think there's, there's this idea that they they could be competitive. And what's so tantalizing for them is they were one piece away before they got that one piece and then they won a championship <laughs> and yes. Kawhi trades are not available every, every year, every decade, every half century. Like that's not the thing that happens very often. If, if I were running the team, I personally don't love the, like one of my least favorite places to be as a franchise is the, you can win a round, but probably won't make a conference finals. Like I, I personally, and this is a, you know, that's what this is, is I don't find that as interesting where it's like, you're not going to make that kind of noise. If you can make a conference finals, if you can win a conference finals, make, make the NBA, maybe win a championship. Sure. By all means, you could do that, but I don't see the Raptors at quite that level. And so if I were running it, I would, I would be willing to walk away. However, we have consistently seen organizations be more enthusiastic about being in that place. If you want to go back, I mean, I know that the Wolves and the Hawks wanted more than that when they acquired DeJounte Murray and Rudy Gobert, but it's hard to get in the conference finals mix. We'll see where they end up. So that's a bitter pill to swallow for the Raptors. And a part of what makes it so much more compelling is that the distinction between those two paths is so different because they have a lot of a large volume of good players and those players would net some real assets. So that's why to me selling off is more palatable for them than a team like the Chicago bulls, because a, they own their own draft pick and B like if you're, if they trade a lot of these guys, if they trade Ananobi and even if they keep Siakam, Ananobi, Van Vliet, potentially Gary Trent jr. And some of these other things, they're getting a fair amount of resources. Like that's the way this is going yeah. to work. And so I, I, that's what I would do. I'm more skeptical that they will, because fundamentally, not only an organization, but especially the people who brought those players in are going to typically be more optimistic. And so they're going to say, we know these guys, like they, this group with some changes won a championship in 2019. We, we think they can get there again. We have a coach that we really like. And so I'm more skeptical that the Raptors are going to get there, even though I think that would be the right path to take. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard with the Raptors because I love the idea of trying. To, I think there are a lot of different ways you can build a team, right? And one way is clearing it all out so that you can find the number one option. And then once you find the number one option, like Dallas did, you build around that guy, right? There's also the Raptors model from 2019 where they built the infrastructure of the two, three, four, five guys, and then went out and acquired the number one option in Kawhi Leonard. It be, it always has felt like to me that that is what the structure of this Raptors not rebuild, but this era of Raptors basketball should be. They should be trying to tread water while competing 
in trying to go out and acquire a star using one of their great assets, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes, etc. The problem for them in this circumstance is that it feels like the superstar market across the NBA in terms of trade potential outcomes has dried up. Yes. And there aren't many actually available. And the ones that, you know, you could maybe make a case could be available like, you know, Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, uh, et cetera. I don't know that they really move the needle enough for Toronto. The guy that I thought could have moved the needle substantially for them this past summer was Kevin Durant. Uh, I thought that if you essentially put Kevin Durant with Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, that is Gary Trent, like, or maybe not Gary Trent. Maybe you need to move Trent potentially with Barnes to like make a move that makes sense cap wise. But I always thought that like, that is the kind of core that can compete for a title, right? You have Durant as the centerpiece. You have the two, three, four options already in place. You build around that in terms of the bench and then you go. Doesn't seem like Kevin Durant's going to get moved maybe until the off season, but who knows? I I don't know that it's fair to really speculate on Kevin Durant trades at this point. Uh, Bradley Beal. I don't know if he moves the needle quite enough for them, given what they'd have to move for Bradley Beal uh, in the off season. It's a question of time is running out for the Raptors. Do they think that a star is going to come available in the next 12 months that allows them to make a shakeup trade involving some of their high-end assets, acquire that star, and then move forward into the future? If not, I do think they should probably move some guys here. I would probably keep OG Ananobi. I would probably keep Pascal Siakam, I would keep, it doesn't seem like Scotty Barnes is on the table to move at all. So I would certainly keep him. I would really look into potentially moving Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent because those are two guys that are on expiring deals. And if this season continues to go poorly for Toronto, what is the incentive for them to return outside of 8% raises versus 5% raises according to the CBA? Not totally sure. Well, so, and, and as the Raptors, are you willing to commit to that quartet, quintet, sextet, however we're going to define terms here, being the foundation of your team for the next four or five years? Like that, because right. that group is going to get expensive, especially if you're intending to retain Pascal Siakam, eventually Scotty Barnes will have a new contract. Now I want to add one more thing in. It's a great point that you brought up in terms of that superstar trade, but this came up. We One of my grand questions I would love to know the answer to is, what offer the Nets would have accepted from the Raptors for KD, presuming that the Raptors turn it down, is are the Raptors actually willing to give up what that would take? Because it's not just is a star available, it's would you make the best offer and are you willing to make that offer? And that's another reason why I would would downshift as the Raptors is because the we know the asking price is going to be astronomical and we know and we don't even know if or when that player is going to become available. And so the Raptors and the Raptors offer is fundamentally different. They don't have much in the way of blue chip draft assets. They have good young players on their team. They have good veteran players on their team. So is that what team X is looking for, for player X? It's hard to know. Yeah. I think that the way to maybe like 
close this conversation a little bit because we want to move on to other players as well, is the Raptors, if they decide to sell, fundamentally own the trade deadline, point blank. Like, if for some ungodly reason, I cannot see this happening. I do not see them moving Pascal Siakam. Uh, If they move Siakam, Siakam is immediately the best player on the trade deadline market. OG Ananobi is immediately the best, most valuable player on the market because he has a year and a half left on that deal, as opposed to if you try to move him later, he only has a year left. Uh, You know, Gary Trent Jr. is a super valuable piece. Like, would you rather have Boyan or Gary Trent for a playoff run? For this year, I think I'd probably rather have Boyan just because we've seen him fit in the team context a little bit more cohesively recently. But if you're factoring in the idea of re-signing and the idea of what they could be two, three years from now. So for some teams, I would rather have Gary Trent. I think Boyan's probably a little bit more valuable because he has that extra uh, extension year from the Mm -hmm. extension that he signed earlier this year. Uh, Plus he has the uh, $2 million guaranteed year after that, that acts as a really interesting potential trade incentive uh, moving forward for your planning. But I think that like there's an interesting case to be made in terms of like Gary Trent's a really valuable piece on the market. And then Fred Van Vliet, if he comes available, like, can you think of like the Lakers, like the Lakers should try and go get Fred Van Vliet if they can. Well, that's, that's sense for them. That's what makes Fred Van Vliet so fascinating is even though he's had a down year, he's such an easy, good fit with a lot of really good teams that you're cultivating a market in terms of potential trade suitors that, might not be asset rich. Some of them are, but that would have a big desire and that there isn't really another comparable player, at least as we're kind of seeing things go. You can interpret that as being an idea of why Fred Van Vliet could be useful as a free agent, even though he'll be in his late twenties at that juncture, but also that's why he's interesting in a trade. And theoretically, if you're acquiring a Fred Van Vliet in a trade, presumably if you're acquiring Gary Trent Jr., you're doing so with, let's call it a loose understanding of what it would take to resign them after this year. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, the last thing I want to finish on with the Raptors is, is there a case for them to be a buyer? Sure. I mean, if, if, if but the problem is the players that they should be buying on just probably aren't available. You know, like the, you brought up the idea of a number one. Like, I don't think a number one is changing teams, this trade deadline. No. So yeah. do you make the phone calls, do the legwork? Yes, absolutely. And if you could, and, and like, and you're weighing all these different, you know, you're weighing all these different doors at the same time. But so you listen, you try to make that happen. I don't think it would. If you're the name that, like, you know, a lot of Raptors fans I think have brought up is Jakob Pertl. The one that's actually a little bit more interesting to me is Nikola Vucevic as a potentially expiring center that you can give a test trial to while also actually having a really interesting defensive infrastructure around him with a guy like OG Ananobi with Pascal Siakam. Theoretically, Scotty Barnes has length, even though I think he struggled a bit defensively this season. I wonder if that kind of infrastructure would allow you to bring the most out of Vucevic's skill level and shot creation ability, which is something they need in the half court from the center position. Also, it would just be an enormous upgrade at the center position from the production they're getting now. I, I honestly wonder if like they're getting, you know, below repla- they're getting like replacement level value from the center position, let's say right now. Um, 
because Christian Coloco is struggling. They don't have a ton of depth there necessarily, or Coloco's at least struggling offensively. If you get Vucevic, like that is a substantial immediate upgrade at the center position that is probably commensurate with as valuable a thing someone could do on the market this year. The Raptors upgrading one of the worst positions in the NBA currently, their center position, for someone that is a very high-level offensive player at the very least. It's a reasonable concept, and I think that the question is going to be, I wouldn't sacrifice a ton of resources to make it happen because yeah. Vooch, as a playoff player, has not exactly been the most... like the most. And yes, you have the framework defensively to make it work, but it does he make them good enough offensively that it really changes things. And also like how much, how many wins does that add? Where does that put them seating wise? But if the bulls are just looking to change direction and you can do it without giving up a ton, you know, you have to match salary, but beyond that, like resources, yeah. then yeah, yeah, you can kick those tires. Of course. Yeah. Like I wonder if, you know, something like a very heavily protected first round pick or something. Like if you could do like a top 20 protected first round pick that probably does not transfer. And then it's, three second round picks or something like that for Vucevic. You know, that could be an interesting concept to me for them. They could actually genuinely upgrade their roster if they want to. I think that ultimately the end of the day, if they want to play the game out where they want to try and see what's available this summer and see what is going to be coming available on the superstar trade market. And they want to extend this period out. I would try and actually do something to help the team now because then it makes it more likely that you can retain Gary Trent and Fred Van Vliet, which is valuable, uh, if you're going to continue to play that game. Sure. If you're not going to do that, then I think you should try and sell. It's just a weird, it's a weird, weird, weird concept. But the Raptors are the most important team at the trade deadline by far this year because they can realistically own the deadline with how many assets they have. Let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to dive into uh, the rest of the actual players that I think could come available and could be really interesting moving forward. Okay. Let's jump in. This is a really interesting deadline, again, because of the lack of superstars. I'll ask you this question, Danny. Who do you think is the most impactful player that seems likely right now to change teams at the deadline? Or at least like there's a 50-50 shot that he changes teams at the deadline. I'm not sure it's 50-50, but I've loved Miles Turner's forever. And Turner, (laughs) as a pending unrestricted free agent like there's the question about what is what what has he conveyed to the Pacers about his willingness to resign the Pacers can do a renegotiation and extension with Turner so they could give him more so they should have a pretty good idea can, whether can, he wants can you to- actually explain that for people so that yes. they understand like the fact that they can move his salary up this year and pay him very very real dollars that he actually can't get elsewhere necessarily Sure. So typically a, a player's salary for a given year is set in stone. And so whether that's 10 million, 20 million, whatever. However, certain contracts can be extended and are renegotiated. And a renegotiation can only push the contract up. It's not like the NFL where you can restructure or anything like that. And so what the Pacers can do, they have a bunch of cap space still into the season. They could use most of that cap space to raise Turner's salary this year. 
And then they can build an extension off of that. Now that could be you raise it all the way up into the thirties, then you give him 30 million a year, but you could also do what the Sixers did years ago with Robert Covington, which is you give him a big bump and then you actually reduce from there. So kind of works. It's not this, but it functions kind of like a balloon payment. So you pay him a lot right now. And then maybe you say, here, here's an extra $20 million. Enjoy that miles Turner, 15, 20. And then we'll build an extension off of that. But you count the total new money. You say to him, hey, we're giving you X amount right now. We'll kind of count that into the extension and just structure it differently. And for Turner, he gets the money right away. And for the Pacers, you typically exchange that for a more reasonable salary in future years when Tyrese Halliburton will eventually be on a new deal and everything else. So that's actually like a really important structural difference and advantage that the Pacers have here within these negotiations. Now, it is worth noting that about a week ago, our good friend Matt Moore over at Action Network, we love Action Network, please, by all means, uh, go support them. Uh, Matt reported that multiple sources indicated this week that if a deal isn't reached, it would finally prompt the Pacers to move on and deal Turner. Now, there have been other reports that have said that Miles Turner has rebuffed Indiana's extension offers to this point. That means there is like seemingly a real chance that Miles Turner could be on the move. I, I don't know. Like, if I was the Pacers, I'd be trying to get an extension done with him. I think, given how good they've looked this year and given the fact that they have these inherent advantages structurally on his deal that they can utilize. Well, that's why Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers are in such a good position is because they can negotiate with basically good faith and say, this is what we can do. And if he's not willing, if Miles Turner is not willing to accept that, then you can say we did our best and now we have to do something else. And so the team acquiring Turner does not have the ability to renegotiate and extend, but they will have full bird rights. And that is in, in effect beyond Miles Turner services for this year what you get is the ability to re-sign him after this year. And whatever terms that is, we'll have to see. And part of the reason why Turner is so valuable is that he is a wonderful rim protector. He has been a very good defensive player throughout his career who can also credibly space the floor. Turner is also drawing free throws more than he has early in his career. And he's fitting well with a very good point guard in Tyrese Halliburton. So it's very different than the case for Fred Van Vliet, but there is a similarity because Players like Miles Turner are not available too often. And even though bigs aren't necessarily in the closing five, like small, like perimeter players are, if they're good enough, Turner brings some of the skills to the table that he could help even a really good team. I think that's dead on. Now, here's the question. What team should actually give up a substantial amount for Miles Turner? I would like to see the New Orleans Pelicans put in their resources for some for a better player, you know. So for a, like a, you know a larger overall, I I don't think we really heard about them in the KD sweepstakes, but New Orleans has this unbelievable cache of assets if if David Griffin's willing to go into it with these Lakers picks and everything else. But the fit of Turner and Zion Williamson together, I think, is is wonderful. And like it's funny that some of the sales pitch, oh, Valachunas is willing to take threes. Well, Miles Turner's actually good at it, and he's a much much better defender. Now, Turner's not switchable, so if you want, or super switchable, so if you want that concept. And 
you if you would of course help a team like the Lakers, and then you could you would have two capable rim protectors with him and Anthony Davis together. So you could go in those directions. I mean, honestly, Miles Turner, unless a team has the center position completely solved, I think he could help almost everybody. I think that's dead on. I will say I don't know if the Pelicans are the team that really should make that move, just given that I kind of love the lineups where they just kind of fucking bludgeon teams. Sure. <laughs> like, like I kind of like that Valanciunas like lineup. I like the fact that they're versatile in terms of roster construction with Larry Nance. I think that there, I guess that what I would say is I think that there are different ways they could use their assets uh, from an opportunity cost perspective. As much I mean, as it's a nice you- fever dream for Miles Turner to be next to, you know, Zion Williamson, but I wonder if there are better ways to utilize their assets, I guess. There potentially are. There's also a big benefit for the Pelicans in just waiting, just seeing how yeah. this season works out. And while I am not the biggest believer in Valanciunas as a playoff player, get to see how it goes. And and there and then the other problem with making a lower scale move for Turner when you consider it relative to their assets is a they don't know where the Wembenyama where the Lakers pick is going to go. Maybe I don't think that gets into the Wembenyama space, but who who knows? And right. you also then lose those assets unless Miles Turner is is awesome you lose that in the pursuit of something even bigger. And that's part of what makes New Orleans situation so different. And it's really unfortunate. Some of the teams that I think intellectually Miles Turner is such a great fit on, like, for example, the Dallas Mavericks, they just don't have the resources. Like, that. Yeah, Miles Turner in Dallas would be awesome. I think he would be a really good fit. Give them an, a defensive, a continued defensive identity, but they can't make it happen. There are a number of different teams in that mold as well. The the team that I wonder about a little bit in terms of what they're going to do is the Memphis Grizzlies. Sure. Uh, if you paired Turner and Jaron Jackson, that is, I mean, Jaron Jackson is, we, we're in agreement that Jaron Jackson's like very clearly the defensive player of the year so far, right? If if you consider this sample sufficient, yes, he is. He has been, he has been that player. I'm still, you know, we're like 550 minutes. That's still a little bit small for me, but based on how he's played, sure. Yeah, I mean, like they were a team just outside of, I think, the top 10 in defense when he was out, and they are now number one in defense uh, in the NBA, not just in the minutes that he plays and not just like since he's been back. For the full season, they've been so good with Jaron Jackson defensively that they are the number one defense in the NBA. So if you've paired Miles Turner and Jaron Jackson, you can still play five out with John Morant with Jaron Jackson, with all of these guys that can space the floor, and then you really just double down defensively. That That's kind of a situation where I wonder if that makes a little bit of sense. Um, yeah. Sam, you want a wild one? Yeah, let's do it. Oklahoma City. I think they're not going to do it because they want to see what happens with, with their draft pick this year. But a Turner-Holmgren combination, if he's willing to re-sign there, then you yeah. you mitigate a lot of the risk that you might feel about Chet Holmgren as a five. And if Chet Holmgren as a five works, then you figure it out later on. Yeah, it's interesting. I just wonder if Turner is not willing to sign an extension with Indy. I mean, he's probably not going to be willing sure. to sign. You know, he's he's going to want to test the market, I guess. But, and and Sam Presti, you, you, of course, this is done with the presumption that you figured that out. You know, like you're not right. you're not going to trade for him blind like that's not the way this is going to work it's going to be more like you we brought up gary trent jr earlier the trent jr norman powell trade a couple years ago where the blazers knew what norman powell's number was and they were willing to pay it 
So yeah. in that's and that makes a Miles Turner trade so much more fascinating because he has a voice in this process too as a pending unrestricted free agent. If he doesn't want to go to a place, he can probably he can't scare them off of making an offer, but he can weaken their offer sufficiently that it won't be the best. <laughs> You and I talked at length last year about the Golden State Warriors for Miles Turner. Sure. I mean, I, I, <laughs> do, we don't think that'll actually happen, right? I don't think so. I mean, yeah. the, the the Warriors do have resources to make it happen, but the other big problem there is, are they willing to pay Miles Turner in addition to everybody else? And it isn't even as much a James Wiseman issue, which we thought it might be before. It's just if, if the idea of keeping Miles Turner is that you're going to be continue to be good. So that means Draymond, you're 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 basically in your mind committing to paying Draymond Green his next contract, Clay Thompson his. They already got Andrew Wiggins locked up, and so that's a lot. And Miles yeah. Turner helps them. You could also make an argument that Miles Turner is not a part of the Warriors' best five. So are you going to give up the treasure it takes to bring in a player who's not that guy? It's hard to know. Is there a better asset that the Pacers could get for an expiring Miles Turner than Moses Moody? Yeah, Moses Moody, yeah, they could do better. They could get somebody who they're more confident in as a starter. I mean, I think Jonathan Kaminga is, is potentially, I don't know if the Warriors would give him up, but. That, that's kind of what I'm wondering. Yeah, would they actually give him up? The, the, the reason I ask this is because you could theoretically structure a deal for Miles Turner around Moses Moody and James Wiseman, and you could make a decision at the end of the year on what you want to do with Miles Turner. Did it work or not? And that actually like really allows them following the Jordan Poole extension if they want to let Miles Turner go and they've gotten rid of the James Wiseman contract, that gets them right around the salary level they're at right now. So that that's actually be much less because you'd be taking Moses Moody's number off as well. So I wonder if that would be attractive to the Warriors on some level, like just taking care of their salary cap situation now while also having Miles Turner for the rest of the year, like almost treating it purely as a rental to try and win a title again. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's move beyond Miles Turner. The guy that has just been all over the trade market at this point this season is John Collins, right? It, it feels like this is the year for John, right? Who, who knows? I mean, between John, <laughs> between Miles Turner and John Collins, they're really getting their frequent fake trade flyer miles for a while. And part of the reason with John Collins is the idea that it's pretty well understood now that he's an awkward fit with the Hawks just because he's John Collins is a wonderful pick and roll player, but you they use the center a lot in those actions and you can only yeah. do so many double drags so the idea that collins could go somewhere where he could be more heavily featured is definitely a sales pitch and turner now or sorry collins now being under contract so he's making 23.5 this year 25.3 the following year and then 26.6 yeah. before a player option so he's under contract i think that's more in the line of a reasonable deal rather than a super team friendly one so yeah. I think part of the reason we hear a lot about John Collins is that Collins, I, I'm assuming, would like to be traded. And he the, the Hawks would rather have him probably than not, but they would also be willing to move in a different direction. The problem is, I brought up before, typically the way this works is you trade a good player for draft assets or something else. I don't think that's necessarily what the Hawks want. They just gave up a bunch for DeJounte Murray. The idea that they're going to more fully change course is hard. So maybe you try to use a third team or maybe there's somebody who does more of a like for like, but just could use John Collins. That's what I can't. I'm so glad you brought up the idea of what a structure of a John Collins trade would look like. 
to me, it would almost have to be like a three-team construction for it to make sense, where like the team acquiring Collins is giving up picks, and then the Hawks are sending the picks to another team in order to get someone that helps them now that also fits their age timeline. It's just hard to figure out who that is, I guess, for me. Well, and, and Sam, if you want to make it even harder, you're looking for potentially like a small forward. Who's giving up a small forward right now? Like it's it's so challenging yeah. to to make this work. It's a part of why I really didn't like the Hawks committing to two guards and as well as Clint Capella's played and they have a Dieko Kongwu, it kind of has to be a three or four because everything else doesn't really make sense. So it's a very challenging circumstance. And Atlanta also doesn't have a ton of salary flexibility because they're barely below the luxury tax threshold this year. And they have a lot of expenditures moving forward. Remember Deandre Hunter's extension is kicking in. So the idea that if they're trading Collins and trying to stay even from a talent perspective, that's a brutally hard needle to thread for Landry Fields. Yeah. A team that has come up for him and a team that is apparently in the market for a four man is the Brooklyn Nets. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It's just that like, I don't know how that works at the end of the day. Like that's, that's what I keep coming back to with the Nets. And I'm glad that our friend Nakias Duncan is here because the teams that I actually wonder if they can make a move for John Collins are teams like the Rockets, Thunder, Jazz. Nakias just brought up in the comments, the Rockets are Thunder. I wonder if it's a team like that that is really, really looking to try and find a longer-term piece that can be almost like a veteran presence for them. I actually really like the idea of the Rockets for John Collins on some level, if only because I think he would hold a lot of those younger guys accountable. He would be a better pick-and-roll threat for guys like Jalen Green and uh, Kevin Porter, Kevin Porter particularly, I think would be helped by having like an actual good downhill rim runner as opposed to Bruno Fernando, who doesn't always do that often well. Um, so like, I, I wonder if that's a team like the Rockets, the Thunder, the Jazz, th- those are the teams that might make a little bit more sense for John Collins. I think that's getting at the right concept. You could also mention that if the Indiana Pacers made a Miles Turner trade, then you add a different pick and roll partner. Like you say, you basically, they're not the same player, but you could do something there. And I I think John Collins is a better fit on a rebuilding team than a great team. That's generally been the issue. And especially because teams haven't defended well when John Collins has been at the five. So he might be more of a floor raiser than a ceiling raiser when we're talking about real good teams. So yeah, I, I think that's an interesting concept and it that can make it harder for a deal to happen um, because how willing are those teams to give up assets unless what the Hawks are looking for is offloading some salary, maybe bringing, some, bringing in something because I, you know, the Thunder, you brought up those teams, they don't have a lot of players that can help Atlanta right now. I just like push back a little bit on John Collins, who I think is... I think he's a guy that actually could help a winning team. I know that like the archetype of who he is as a player makes it a little bit harder to make like rosters function around him really well. It's funny. Like I would almost go try to get him if I was the Pacers, if I was keeping miles Turner. Cause like, I love the idea of using miles as like a floor spacer using like some weird, like double drags using some weird, like Spain pick and roll actions where Collins is diving to the rim. Turner is popping out for three. Uh, 
you know, using Turner as your corner space or using Collins as your high level rim runner for uh, Tyrese Halliburton. I also think that like, I think Collins has gotten better at the four defensively. I think he's actually like at the four. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's actually like pretty good at the four now. He's not like a plus defender, but he is totally fine defensively at the four, especially when you account for what his offensive value can be as a rim runner, potentially as a floor spacer. I know the shooting has fallen off of a cliff this year, but you know, prior to this 22% mark that he's been shooting over the previous three years, John Collins had shot uh, 39% from three in 158 games times, you know, four, three point attempts per game. So I think the shooting is probably still there in limited volume. The rim running is super valuable. The rebounding is super valuable. I I wonder maybe, maybe the Pacers like make a lot of sense for him if they do decide to keep a, Miles Turner. But I I wonder if that's the structure. I wonder if it's a team like that, the Thunder, the Rockets, the Jazz, the Pacers, a team that's building sees him as a guy they can build with. Yeah. And it's also fair to mention that Collins could fit in. I think he could fit in on a good team. It's just, where is he in the pecking order? If he's like your fourth or fifth best player, then how much are you going to give up to make that happen? And he's paid, he's paid properly, if not overpaid for that kind of a role. Yeah. Um, Okay. The next guy we have to talk about is Boyan Bogdanovich, who, based off of Mark Stein's reporting, seems like one of the most popular trade targets out on the market. What have been your thoughts on Boyan this year? He's been one of the bright spots for the Pistons. I think the ability to space the floor, make good decisions when the ball is in his hands is is valuable. And Bogdanovich has settled in as a non-premium defender often at a not like at a non-premium defensive position you know he's probably going to defend the other team's second best forward you know and that's okay like that's not it's not if, if you could shoot the way he does and you can make decisions the way he does then you will live with that now you do run into an interesting parallel with john collins of like he makes good teams better but he's not going to transform them and I mean, for example, like he was just on the Utah Jazz. He didn't necessarily transform the Utah Jazz, though their offense, I think, has been underappreciated, the success that they had on that end of the floor. And so I, I think that Bogdanovich, if if they're not asking for a an absolute massive premium, you could do that. And then the other sales pitch for teams with Bogdanovich is, yeah, he's athletically limited and he's a little bit older, but his contract is very reasonable. And that's the the nature of the extension that he signed, I think this is kudos to Troy Weaver for making it happen, a flat $20 million for next year, and then that partially guaranteed $2 million after that, that teams can be comfortable with that. It's not too long of an obligation. It's not too rich of an obligation. And it's not an expiring contract where, oh, God, we have to negotiate with him. So if you could do it for a late first that you're confident isn't going to be a premium one, yeah, I could see that being interesting, especially if you have salary that matches that isn't players that really may help you a lot. Like, yeah, if you're yeah. trading 20 million in guys that are in your rotation for Bogdanovich, then you're less willing to give up that kind of an asset. Dell treasure in the YouTube comments just kind of brought up an interesting structure here. Okay. I wonder if there is something to boy on to the Hawks, John Collins to like a third team. And then the Pistons get like a first round pick Atlanta, maybe gets like an additional first round pick. And the third team gets John Collins. Oh, if we have both Bogdanoviches on the same team, that would be that would be fascinating. And I mean, there's also the quote from it, the it like makes sense though, right? Like yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I think Bogdanovich is a better fit. Like if you if you think about the offensive kind of like 
the, the focal point being Trey Young and the idea that it's very hard to maximize two pick and roll bigs, then Bogdanovich can function in that framework a lot better. Even if you want to argue John Collins is a better player, Bogdanovich is a better fit. And so then is another team going to pay that premium for the upgrade of that John Collins provide? If you do that, then you probably have enough resources in the trade to make it worthwhile for both the Pistons perspective and the Hawks. I don't know necessarily who that third team is, but it is conceptually possible. Sure. I like the idea. I, I wonder if the Thunder makes some sense there. Like the Thunder have this cache of assets where they could theoretically try and get like a John Collins. He fits really, really well with a Chet Holmgren, in my opinion. Um, you know, DJ in the YouTube comments now says, why not John Collins to Detroit? I mean, he fits a lot of what Troy Weaver likes. On some he does. Too. Like, yeah. I, Nate Duncan and I talked about that recently on our pod. We got that as a, as a, as a reader question. And I think he fits better with Isaiah Stewart than with Jalen Duran depending on how you want to do it just because then you have, because if you, if the other big can't space, you're running into a problem like the Hawks have run into where it's like, Oh, you want to involve that guy in the action. And then John Collins, is not going to be happy? But I do really like John Collins as a pick and roll partner with Kate Cunningham. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know. There there could be something to like a boy on Collins structure that the Hawks would have to get more. It could allow like the Hawks to maintain being good, you know, attempting to be good, maybe is a better way to put it now while also adding some future assets moving forward. That's intriguing to me on on a real level. Uh, The other guy that like really stands out to me. And I talked about this with Jason Tim last week on the show. I think Kyle Kuzma is like a great target for teams. It seems like he recognizes he will get more on the free agency market. If he decides to test the market as opposed to sign an extension with the wizards. If he is not willing to sign an extension with the wizards, the Wizards should trade him at the deadline, right? Like, period. The Wizards should do a lot of things, but yeah, that is, <laughs> that is one of those things too. I think that that's, that's a great point. Uh, the Wizards should do a lot of things and they don't. And for what it's worth, like there was recently a report that I saw that like they envision Beal, Kristaps, and Kuzma is like the core three moving forward. And that is a great road to... 37 wins a year and i'm super excited about it if i'm a wizards fan except i'm not uh if i was them i'd be looking to cash in on kuzma right now kuzma could help a lot of teams he's really really improved i think over the course of his career he's a solid defensive player now at six foot nine has that real positional size can create his own shot at a pretty reasonable level you know the shooting isn't great but he's fearless as a shooter and teams do tend to close out on him like that's a big part of this because he gets them up at such volume and makes like 34 to 36% based on the typical year teams will at least like pay attention to him at the very least. So this also allows the wizards to be worse. I mean, I would very strongly be looking to move him if I was them and you know, the same teams that are in on Boyan, the Hawks, the Pelicans, you know, all those teams should be in on Kuzma as well. I agree. And the, the Kuzma, I'm less sold on him like as a player, I think, than you are because he, I think of him more as a compliment. He's not your lead scorer, but he could be a part of a good offense. He's not your lead defender, but he could be part of a good defense. And yeah, those players are a lot more valuable if they're around 6'9". Like that, that helps. But right. Kuzma, the argument is that he will get paid anyway. Like there are teams and unrestricted free agency is about falling in love. And the other reason why the Wizards should at least heavily consider it is... 
I'm always very gun shy on unrestricted free agency when the player has never chosen your team at any point in time. Like he didn't choose to sign an extension there. He didn't choose to sign there as a, an offer sheet or anything else. And so this is a great point. How do you know that even if the offers are the same, that you're going to get him? And so if the, the Washington Wizards have overpaid before and they may overpay again this same offseason with a different player, Kristaps Porzingis. So you're taking a larger risk. There is not necessarily a reason to believe that Kyle Kuzma is connected to your organization sufficiently that he's that he's going to do that. And I always think about the third contract as so definitive because that's when players get to exert their preferences in the matter really for the first time in their career. And so Kyle Kuzma, he might not have the most robust just because there aren't going to be that many teams with cap space. Side and trades, of course, could be an option as well if Tommy Shepard's wouldn't play ball. But that does lead to him being a logical trade target. And like John Collins, it's interesting you rob Collins and Bogdanovich. A lot of these guys, they're good complementary players. It's just what kind of team are you trying to complement? What kind of star player are you trying to complement? And yes. Kuzma... The other part to remember is it took him longer to get into the league. So this contract is going to cover the remainder of his prime. It's going to be his age. Let's say it's a four-year deal, 28, 29, 30, and 31. So A, that means Kuzma is going to be looking for a big payday and probably his last real big one. And it's going to be you getting those years. And so it's kind of going to be, you know, depending on how you see it, the the, the crest and then the post-crest, or if maybe these are his best years, then we'll have to see you at that point. But Kuzma will definitely draw interest. And one thing to mention is like, I'm lower on the concept of Kyle Kuzma than most. That's why I probably wouldn't be the GM trading for him, but there are other people who are way (laughs) higher on him and they're the ones who would make the trade and who would sign him. And so you get these factors pulling in the same direction. Okay. This next group of guys, Nikola Vucevic, you know, we haven't really talked about the bulls yet in terms of what they're doing because the bulls are another team where, this is actually the deadline for them. Whereas with the Raptors, it's more, you know, they have 18 months really to make high level decisions outside of Trent and uh, Fred Van Vliet. The Bulls like need to make moves now. Vucevic is a free agent. Lonzo Ball, we don't know what's going on with his health. Uh, DeMar DeRozan certainly is, uh, I believe has a year and a half left on his contract. And this is a team that's asset poor as well whereas the raptors have all of their assets moving forward the bulls do not due to that disastrous nikola vucevic trade that put them in the midst of this like middling roster i I think the bulls should be trying to like really use this deadline to revamp their direction moving forward you know would arturis karnisivis be the guy that would be given the opportunity to do that, uh, you know, this is another point that often needs to be brought up, you know, is the general manager chasing a contract extension or is he chasing like the best for the good of the team? And I'm not making a, you know, casting aspersions on Karnisivis in any direction. I'm just saying that, you know, the Vucevic trade was a disaster and this core has like seemingly topped out at 48 wins. If Lonzo ball isn't, going to get back to what he was previously. So they need to do something. I would be looking to move as many pieces as possible if I was them, but it seems like based off of Darnell Mayberry at the athletic, that they're expecting a quieter trade deadline with maybe just someone like Vucevic being the player that's on the move. 
Right, and that's why it's such a challenge. You brought up the the Raptors basically having 18 months. I think of it for the Bulls as seven months to make a decision. They have this trade deadline and then theoretically the beginning of the offseason. Now, Vooch is harder to deal than. You could do a sign-in trade potentially at that juncture depending on who's interested and what Vooch is willing to do. But also, at that point, you have more information on DeRozan and Zach Levine. But part of the argument, if, if you're going, if the idea is that you're going to sell at some point, my instinct is that you would fetch more for DeMar DeRozan now than a year than at the in the offseason because A, the acquiring team gets him for two postseason runs rather than one. Yep. And yep. they get a more viable extension negotiation window because remember, the extend and trade rules are really limiting for six months. And so if you acquire DeRozan now, even if you can't technically consummate it on like July 1st, you could functionally have an agreement done if DeRozan is amenable to that. And so yeah. if uh, my instinct is the offers would be better. And the funny thing is the direct parallel here in some ways could be when the Magic traded Vucevic, I thought they waited too long and then they got a better return for him than I thought. That's how these things can change really quickly. I, like you, thought the Bulls gave up too much for him. That, had, that part of it hasn't worked out super well, though the DeRozan acquisition, of course, has. I think the more fascinating question with Chicago, I like to use the term defining success. A, I don't think the Bulls are good enough that I would keep this team together. But B, this is the question I want to ask you. Let's say the idea is we're not good enough right now. Do you think if they traded DeRozan and Vucevic that the Bulls could be good enough by the end of Zach Levine's prime? Or do you think it's going to take more than two to three years to work through this <laughs> And so you might as well at least consider moving all three. I would say that the answer is no. I don't think they would be good enough during Zach Levine's prime. But I don't think you can move Levine yet without taking a bath on his value. Uh, he's played really, really well recently. Right. But there are some real structural knee concerns there seemingly that teams have that could diminish his value. I think that honestly, he might be someone that fetches more value when he has two years left on his deal as opposed to four years left on his mm -hmm. contract, just from a risk mitigation standpoint, from a team perspective. Um, yeah, it's it, It's really complicated if you're them. I think that this was the whole thing of what, why them diving in two feet first with all of this was a question. And it looked good for a minute when DeMar DeRozan made all NBA last year and Lonzo ball was really healthy and was playing super well for them. But it, it, it kind of backs you into a corner really quickly when you give DeRozan a three-year contract and you do sign a guy with known health problems in Lonzo ball that, has missed swaths of seasons before previously. And Nikola Vucevic, who is a guy that's just limited. And on top of it, it's a guy that doesn't really fit with a lot of the other guys they have on the roster because so many of their guys love to operate in that mid-range, mid-post area. Uh, especially a lot of the guys they're developing, like a Patrick Williams, for instance, really likes that area as well. So I would be looking to move Vucevic. I would certainly test the market to see what's out there. On DeMar DeRozan, I think is where I'm at. Yeah, I, uh, it's tough. I think that, I think there's a team out there that would take Vucevic for like a late first, probably. And from there, you kind of just continue to see what's available. 
The other key question from Chicago's perspective, if I were them, I would take on some negative contract to get a better asset for Vooch. Like that, that could be the way also to a yeah. first round pick is a team that has not a bad player, but just a slightly overpaid player who's making 15, 16, 20 million for the next year or two that there's, doesn't really want that circumstance. And so you can be a vehicle for that saving those two things, or you could add a different sweetener. Like there are a couple different ways to get it done. Cause like the, the, the other problem for a Vucevic trade of it in and of itself, let's say we're thinking of this as expiring for expiring is the other team is likely trading for him for his bird rights. So you have to like Vucevic enough when the bulls, you know, have it, the experiment hasn't worked super well you have to think it's different for us and we want to give him his next contract. That's why I'm more skeptical that without those cap savings, you could get a first for him. Speaking of bad contracts, would Dallas have any interest here? I wonder. I think the, they don't, they, with the first they already owe to the Knicks, it would be hard for them from an asset perspective. And then the other problem is yes, Maxi Kleba is dealing with this injury. We hope he could even make it back this year. Vooch doesn't fit within the best defensive theories of the team, but also I like Christian Woodmore. So the idea of like, yeah. do you want to roll the same dice twice or do you want to try to get something else? So like you, you knock around it just because he's a talented player who could potentially help your team. But I would be surprised if Dallas, I, I, I don't think they should make the best offer, whether they would or not, who in the world knows. Right. I think I agree with you on that. Okay. Next group of guys here would be well, actually no. Let's talk about Jakob Pertl real quick because it feels like Jakob Pertl is an important name to discuss on this market because he is potentially a free agent this summer. It does not. Well, the Spurs can't extend him because he only had a three-year deal, right? I believe no Pertl. I believe he can be extended, but or or at least they could come to a functional agreement. Like we could, but but the problem is that he's also limited by the the rules of the collective bargaining agreement in terms of duration and how much the raises can be. So in all likelihood, if you're intend to bring Jakob Pertl back, whether it's described as an extension or it's just done on January 1st, kind of like, or July 1st, kind of like the Norman Powell deal was, I, you know, that money's not going to kick in until the next year anyway. So I think that a, whether it's the Spurs or somebody else, you're thinking of it as a player that you re-sign in the off season and you just understand what the number is in, in Pirtle's 27, he'd be signing a deal 28, 29, 30, 31, or, you know, maybe a three-year deal where I would think that he could still be a part of their core moving forward. I also think he is one of those guys who really helps develop and unlock a lot of their younger players because he's one of the best screeners in the league. He's a great defender that helps you just create, accountability and infrastructure defensively. Uh, I think he actually has real value for the Spurs. I I would be trying to re-sign him if I was them. And hopefully they, you know, maybe they have come to like a functional agreement where, you know, he is re-signing on July 1st. It would take quite a bit. Like people I think have like scoffed at two first round picks for Jakob Pertl as like a price. I don't know if it would quite cost that much. It might cost like, for me, a first round pick and a player that I find interesting uh, and like potentially developable moving forward. But I actually don't think that like putting a high price tag on him is crazy if I was the Spurs. I wonder 
whether the rim protect so like Jakobertel has been a consistently valuable rim protector over the last few years, and that has weirdly fallen off this year along with all of the other Spurs defensive problems. I don't yet have a diagnosis for whether there's something has fundamentally changed. Usually it doesn't. Like whether it's a guy who's all of a sudden he's blocking way more shots than before. Usually they regress to the mean. It could be a similar situation. But the problem with Jakob Pertl and, you know, going real premium for him, and this is more a team offering that kind of thing, is just if you're not one of the five to eight best centers in the league, then you might not be in the closing five for a good team. So you could you could help, and like the, there is value to be not being in the closing five of a good team. Like I think sometimes it's the all or nothing propositions are overstated, right? But are you willing to break the bank either in terms of trade assets, contracts, and th- I mean, Pirtle? Th- it's in some ways the DeAndre Ayton problem, and we saw how his market Ayton, a much more established player than Pirtle, though he was restricted. It took a long time for a situation to resolve because it's like, yeah. well, are we really going to go crazy over a player of this caliber? And there's a chance that you could get Pirtle for below market just because he's a little bit older, not super buzzy, considering how this year has gone for the Spurs overall. So I think that the Spurs being willing to bring him back actually makes it significantly less likely that a trade happens because, as you said, it just raises it raises their asking price. Now, the other consideration for Pirtle and for everyone involved is there's a distinct chance that they could functionally replace Pirtle through the draft where all of a sudden they bring right. in somebody else and now they're a lot less excited about it or San Antonio is going to have gobs and gobs of cap space. There isn't really a center that's screaming to me, San Antonio Spurs. But the idea of like, do we want to commit to four years of this player who is good, but not good enough that we would never go over him. And so as San Antonio, who is basically a blank canvas other than Keldon Johnson and some of their recent draft picks in terms of like the future of the team, I, I think they should be more reluctant as much as I, I like Eckerberton, and you know this, because if you're making a real commitment, now if you get him for a fair market value, then the hope is that you can move him on to somebody else. This just like screams to me like four year, $64 million stays with the Spurs on July 1st for, you know, maybe with a team option on year four or something like that. Like he gets a substantial guaranteed amount of money that is more than what he's extension eligible for right now. But, you know, a deal that is eminently tradable still, especially once the cap spikes, it just feels like that's where this is going, right? It's totally reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, like when I think about that, that, that's where I'm just like, okay, this makes sense. A popular name that's been out there that I can't wrap my head around that much, although, you know, given the way the Knicks roster is, it makes sense, is Emmanuel Quickly. Emmanuel Quickly I, I just continues to come up as a player that is on the market, and he had a terrific rookie season, obviously, has gotten better in some tangible ways. I think he's a drastically better finisher inside that like 15 foot in, in range, particularly. Uh, I think he has also gotten a little bit better with his decision-making and passing. It's just that the shooting has fallen off. Like he's not hitting 39% anymore from three. He's hitting 33% from three at this point. I still think he's a pretty valuable player. He is someone that like, I don't know what the extension number would be because like, obviously that's kind of why the Knicks would be potentially looking to move him to get out ahead of the extension. 
I, I just don't know what to think of why the Knicks would be trying to move him like in, you know, at this deadline beyond that, because if maybe if they just don't want to extend him, that's it. Right. That's a big part of it. The other way is that once you've kind of spent your salary cap, it's really hard to improve, you know, like that it's, it's yeah. a functional limitation that you get into. And if the Knicks want to improve for various different reasons, they could do it that way. The other challenge with Emmanuel quickly, and this is true for both the Knicks and a potential trade partner is that, if you're acquiring quickly, it is presumably done with the intention of him being your starting point guard moving forward. Now, quickly can be a compliment theoretically to another guard, but typically if you're, you know, 6263 and you're, you know, the, the and of the kind of the skill set that he has, that's the, that's the sales pitch is that he's going to be your lead creator. And if the Knicks don't feel that he's that he's good enough to be that guy, or they think he's not the greatest fit next to Jalen Brunson, then I think it's better to be a year early rather than a year late with a player like that. Yeah. And because restricted free agency is about falling in love, you if you don't love a player, the risk is that somebody does makes a reckless offer and then you get nothing for it. And so and from the yeah. Knicks standpoint, that would be Worse, and then the the funniest thing that happens is restricted free agency as the team holding a player's rights is so boomer bust because sometimes you run the risk of them getting a good offer, you match it, and then all of a sudden you have that player. Like you could think about Alan Crabb or Otto Porter as examples of this, where the worst thing was actually retaining the player rather than making the offer in the first place. So if you're not in love, you should probably make a move and with Jalen Brunson already in the fold, you kind of want to think, see it through the lens of Jalen Brunson as well. Brunson's done a very good job, I would say, overall for the Knicks. So I understand why you listen. There's a difference between listening and selling. And I don't yeah. know where Emmanuel quickly fits in there. But I, I'm concerned about quickly. Like there's this group of players, and I mean, the Houston Rockets seems like they have like five of them, who are good offensive players who have good futures, but I'm not sure they're the guy. And yeah, big, yeah, yeah, yeah. big problem, we just talked about it with centers. Like I talked about the five to eight being the delineation somewhere there with centers just because it's a less premium position is that players below that threshold who are capable offensively, but you know, we'll see how they are defensively. Just they're They always get paid because they could score and they generally don't shift team winning quite as much. So if you don't think quickly goes beyond that threshold, you might want to actually make a move the team that makes a lot of sense for Emmanuel quickly is Dallas in theory. But here's the thing. If you're Dallas, like Jaden Hardy's actually looked pretty good over the mm -hmm. last few games. And it's a very similar archetype and it's a very similar level of talent. In my opinion, like I think Jaden Hardy's good. I had him at like 20th on my board. I would be pretty happy to just keep developing him and see if he continues to go down that road. Maybe if Dallas thinks they can win a title this year, you think Emmanuel quickly is like a little bit more ready to play that high level role as opposed to Jaden Hardy, but I wouldn't give up like crazy assets for Emmanuel quickly either. The other team that stands out a little bit to me, Milwaukee has been in the mix more for a wing. It feels like than like a guard, like a quickly. Milwaukee makes a lot of sense for him, I think. Going It'd out, getting like a floor spacing guy, they have the defensive infrastructure to help him. Like, I wonder if that's the one. 
I'd, I'd be interested there. The challenge is just, are you going to eventually, you know, we're a year plus away from paying him. Are you going to pay him and pay everyone else? That's a big question. I'm going to add in one more yeah. team. And it's a team we discussed a lot earlier. The Toronto Raptors. If the, adding, yeah, in, sure. adding in an offensive player, they have the infrastructure. Masai Ujiri, even though it's a different front office, has negotiated with the Knicks plenty in the past. So, yep. and, and inner division stuff generally doesn't mean that much in the NBA. You'll see it sometimes, but it's, um, yep. the, that sort of a team, a team that isn't looking for Emmanuel quickly to solve all of their problems is actually probably the best place for him to go. And one of the other challenges is that a lot of the teams that have that, you know, that lead player who's bigger than point guard sized, which you could argue is a good theory for a quickly destination already have a smaller guard already have somebody in place. So that can be a challenge, you know, it's so like, for example, like Detroit could use Emmanuel quickly, have him as another player within rotation, but they already have, you know, Jay Nivey in place. They already have other players. So like, would they really give up the resources and pay the contract for Emmanuel quickly with, with what they already have? Well, here's the other team. Like Miami makes a lot of sense mm. I think, for Emmanuel quickly because they don't really have like super high level functionality with their trade salaries unless Duncan Robinson is involved. And I don't really think Duncan Robinson uh, is someone that anyone wants league wide right now, unfortunately. Sorry, Duncan. Um, But like they could use another real high level scorer in that way. Could you do something like Emmanuel quickly for like Nikola Jovic or like, Something like that, like that. Emmanuel quickly like helps Miami right now and is like valuable. I think the Knicks would want more, and especially there's the drive the car off the lot. Jovic is actually hurt at the moment as well, so yeah. maybe if I mean one of these pieces of intel you would actually know better than I would is if there's a player that Leon Rose really liked in the draft process that happened that that is available. Those are the kinds of ones where you're like, oh, the Knicks were yeah. rumored for this guy a year or two ago then then you start to start to have the pieces fit together or if they happen to be represented by CAA. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that, yeah, try, trying to find uh, Miami, Miami makes a lot of sense to me now that I think about it because of the way that they are incentivized to try to find guys who are on lower deals, but also could help them like right now, essentially. That's that's an interesting. I, I would also I would also agree the Hornets would be a logical one for quickly. Now you probably don't want to start him and Lamelo together, but just have another guy who can create. Like that's something. Yeah. It's, a, it's a problem they're going to need to solve eventually if the price is low enough. Okay. Uh, next up, let's go to the Rockets. Eric Gordon is the guy that I think probably I think Eric probably gets moved at the deadline. It's funny, like we all talk about like the Rockets needing veteran leadership. They need vets in the room. Austin Rivers had a great quote about it after Minnesota played them earlier this week. It's just that like I don't know if Eric Gordon's like helping the situation down there. And it's probably time to cash in the asset. It was probably time to cash in the asset last year. Uh, it was probably time to cash in the asset the year before, for being completely honest. But now they're stuck, and I think they're probably not going to get a first-round pick for Eric Gordon. With Houston, what I would do if I was Houston, I would move Eric Gordon for a different vet, and I would try to move that late first-round pick that they have from Milwaukee for another veteran player in some way. Maybe it's something like John Collins and that first-round pick and you know one of their younger players for um, – 
or John Collins for Eric Gordon, that first round pick and one of their younger players or something like that. Right. Like that could make a lot of sense to me. Basically go get vets, bring some accountability, do something like that. Trade Eric Gordon to a team where he can be helpful. Cause I think Eric Gordon can still be helpful. He can still shoot the ball. He has been apathetic this year defensively. He doesn't seem to be all that um, aggressively defending maybe and being a part of maintaining high accountability in Houston. But I do think that there are moves out there where you could bring back other veterans that could help you in more tangible ways. I think Eric Gordon, unfortunately for the Rockets, is a reminder of the timing. Assets do not always accrue in value. They can they can always shift yeah. around. And I like Eric Gordon. It's also been a long time now. It's been a few years since he was a part of a really successful team. And the longer distance you get from that, especially when a player is post-prime, this is Eric Gordon's age 34 season, the less yeah. convinced a potential suitor is that he's their guy that he can do that. The big question that Rafael Stone and the Rockets have to manage with Eric Gordon at this point, because they waited so long is something I brought up with Vucevic before, which is one of the ways that you can get a better asset is by taking on future money. Now it's a lot more palatable to do that for a John Collins who can help you a lot over those years than it is for a player who's less helpful. And so the Rockets, if they just let Eric Gordon walk, depending on where their graphic ends up, like they're going to have max space plus. And if you take on 20 to 25 million with, with Gordon, if you use that as a mechanism, that gets harder. Is there a max player that they want to go after there or that they should probably not. Like, I mean, that's, it's yeah. a consideration, but I think stone and Tillman Fertitta and everybody else would probably be interested in improving considering how long now they've been shaky. So you, I think you you have to consider a lot of different formats, a lot of different structures, but the likelihood of the Rockets getting something premium for Gordon, my instinct is those days have passed, but I've been wrong plenty of times where a team has liked him for years and they think this is their chance they can actually get him. Yeah, to me, it's, it's more just like, I don't even know if it's like making a like-for-like like move. They have enough like borderline guys that were late for you know back half of the first round picks right or guys that have emerged from second round picks like they've actually it's funny the rockets have done okay in the draft they just haven't hit the home run yet right like Tari Eason looks like a good pick I think Ty Ty Washington is going to be a good pick uh KJ Martin is a good pick Jabari Smith I think is going to be fine Jalen Green I think is going to be fine in some respect, at the very least, I think he's going to average 25 points a game. So like they've, they've hit on guys. It's just that they haven't hit the home run yet. And because they haven't hit the home run yet, there's no like North star. And, and like, there's no like centerpiece that they're building toward. Shangun's another one, like good pick that has hit value wise in terms of what you expect from the 16th overall pick. So like, they're in a strange spot. They just have so many of these guys now that I think they actually need to like try and consolidate them or just not bring any more of them in. Right. Because those guys take up like real roster spots and it becomes hard to develop them all when you have that many on the team. That's a good point. But you also want to make sure that you're, you have as many rolls of the dice as possible. So the one risk there, and I think teams have been too reluctant to this is that you, sometimes you're going to cut a guy with a guaranteed contract and that's okay. Like Toronto to their credit has done that before Oklahoma cities that danced around it a few times. And so if you, if you're sure that Josh Christopher is going to cash, if you're sure that Ty Ty is going to, going to be a good player, then that's different than 
we hope that he is, and we're not 100% sure. And so to me, you keep building, you keep building the, the opportunities until you know. And so you go that direction. There will be some losses on the margins there. That's just the way it works. But yeah. they just they just don't quite have enough yet. And as you said, the the home run isn't there. That will clarify a lot of things for them. It could be a circumstance kind of like the Orlando Magic were in for years, where they just never had the number one. And that remember, those Orlando Magic teams made the playoffs. Like you could yeah. you could get there. They just weren't a team that really threatened to win a lot. And then they actually made a fair amount of resources on the way out and then they they've gotten I, I actually like their future a lot more now than i have at any point in like the last seven years or whatever i can't they've traded dwight howard a lifetime and a half ago so i can't remember exactly how long ago <laughs> it was so like for houston it is a challenging situation but from gordon's perspective the big question is going to be how much salary are you willing to take on and kids if, if it's for one year i think you're pretty open to it if it gives you a stronger asset if it's two plus i'd probably be reluctant because then you've you've had some real opportunities go by the wayside. Yeah. Um, the last team I want to talk about that I think is interesting is the Utah Jazz. We all got really excited and enthusiastic about the Jazz coming into the first, you know, 15 games of the year. But we're now looking up. They're 20 and 23. And they play the Cavaliers tonight at home. That could be looking at 20 and 24, given how good Cleveland is. That is outside of the current top 10 in the Western Conference. We do know that when Danny Ainge comes into places, uh, you know, for instance, when he got that Boston job, he does potentially like to try and, you know, make some moves and maybe set himself up for a high level draft pick in some respect. I wonder if this is a team that we all got really excited about, like performing really, really well, but ultimately does maybe make that push towards selling some of their veterans at the deadline in order to get more substantially in the Wembenyama sweepstakes. It makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider that some of the bright spots have been young players. I mean, Lowry Markkinen is having an all-star caliber yep. season. And so you're presumably not going to be trading him right now. And the other benefit for potentially for Ainge and the Jazz is that when the team has been successful, that means that some of the support players look better. You've been doing it in a more relevant way. And so for Malik Beasley, or if they're willing to reroute Kelly Olynyk, I don't know what the, what they want to do with Mike Conley. And Clarkson's a complicated situation. I would actually be way more open to moving him than I'm guessing the Jazz would be just because he, he does, he has had this connection with the organization, but He's, I don't think he's going to be a part of the next great jazz team. And so to me, yeah. you take the sentimentality out for that sort of a circumstance and you you move forward with it. And so what Ainge can do, though, is negotiate from a position of strength because on a lot of these players, they have a 23-24 component. And so that means they don't have to trade Kelly Olenek now. They don't have to trade Malik Beasley now. But I think it's the right time to to listen and probably the right time to do so if you don't see those players as a part of your, let's say the 24, 25 Utah jazz team. Well, and the Clarkson one is very complicated because he is in all likelihood, given that he's averaging 20 points per game currently an unrestricted free agent this off season, he does have a player option for about 14 million, but I would bet you, he does not pick that up. Don't you think? Presumably a team would be interested enough. And, and also the, the jazz can and presumably have had, 
extension negotiations with him just to get an idea of what he's looking for right now, just to, to talk about it. Because you, you get that intel, you and I don't have it, but presumably Zanuck and Ainge do. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a really important consideration here. And you don't want to you, you don't want to sign Clarkson to a bad contract, and you also don't want to lose him for nothing. So, the as John Hollinger calls it, the bird rights trap is a is a risk there. Also, just him going somewhere else is a risk there. And yeah, it, it's and the other big question for Utah, like I brought up twenty four twenty five as a focus, is they have a lot of players who are unambiguously helping them right now. But yeah. are they going to be helping them two years from now? And so Clarkson's one of those. Kelly Olynyk is one of those. Mike Conley is one of those. And th- if that's if that's what you're using as the focus, then you probably are going to be more aggressive making those decisions at the deadline now. Clarkson has been. This is a career year for Jordan Clarkson. He's mm-hmm. been absolutely outstanding. Uh, to me, they should probably be cashing in on that. You, like, you absolutely. I mean, if a player is having a career season and they're thirty, unless they're Demar Derozan, which has worked out exceedingly well, but Derozan was a better player than Clarkson their entire careers. So, like, right. yeah, then that sort of circumstances. Generally speaking, the team that signs a thirty-year-old with a career year to their next contract is not thrilled about that two years later. Right. I think they should be looking to cash in on him. At the end of the day, I do, and. It's a credit to Clarkson that he has put himself in this position to where he should be one of the most sought after players on the market at this point. Like he is that good of a scorer and the contract is not onerous enough to where uh, it will be hard to acquire him as a uh, rental player at the deadline. So, yeah, I think they should be looking to sell. I I think this is a team that makes a lot of sense in terms of looking to sell. I think you move a Linux. I think a Linux would actually be one of the more sneaky, valuable players on the market. This He's deadline. been valuable for the jazz. Yeah. Like people, I think would be surprised that Kelly Olynyk would fetch. Like if Kelly Olynyk fetched a fake first round pick that was like super, super protected, would that surprise you? No, it, it wouldn't. I mean, you do run the risk of like him, you know, he wasn't traded for a ton last offseason, though Bogdanovich has worked out very well for the Pistons. But yeah, I, you could see that. And then there's the complication like with Conley, where he's owed $24.4 million for next year, but it is only partially guaranteed. Though theoretically, if you're acquiring Conley, you're acquiring him to pay him that salary for next year, because otherwise, what's yeah. the point? Yeah, like they do still weirdly line up with the Lakers as like a potential trade option to get the Lakers help. Like you could do Jordan Clarkson, Mike Conley, and X player on this roster, Kelly Olenek maybe, for Malik Beasley. Or Malik Beasley for Russell Westbrook. And that deal helps the Lakers be a good team that then spaces the floor. You know, Mike Conley can run the show. I think Conley has known LeBron James for many, many years at this point. It, it does kind of track reasonably well. Uh, we mentioned Kelly Olynyk earlier, or we mentioned Miles Turner earlier for the Warriors. Maybe Kelly Olynyk also fits that bill for the Warriors, where allows them to cash in the James Wiseman asset now to a small extent, get better for this season, and then additionally set themselves up for the future by not picking up Kelly Olynyk's. Is it a team option or a non guarantee? I can't remember which one. It is um, a light partial guarantee. 
a light partial guarantee. So you save the money by then moving him on elsewhere. And, you know, maybe the, maybe the jazz who have had success with these bigger, longer, big men try to use James Wiseman and Walker Kessler as like a combo, big uh, pairing moving forward. Like that's interesting to me as a potential structure for both teams. There's also the benefit for the Jazz of being a little bit worse and strengthening their draft pick, even if they don't end up in the top four, just getting a better pick this year. And Utah yep. is intensely invested in the futures of other teams, but that doesn't mean they have to for themselves. They should make the right decision on their own pace. And another important consideration for the Jazz is that they really only have two players signed to significant contracts beyond next season. They haven't always been the biggest free agent destination, but there are lots of other ways to use cap space and salary flexibility. So yeah. that could even be they take on negative salary in a trade, like they get an even better return by doing that for next year or moving forward, or by just at the time being a part of other negotiations. Like it, it could be very useful for Danny Ainge, and I know he loves flexibility. Yeah, and I'll also note like a very popular name is obviously Jared Vanderbilt. I would not move Jared Vanderbilt. <laughs> I was Utah. I mean, he's not untradeable, but it's just hard to see. It's hard to see a team valuing him at the level yeah. that you would do. Though Vanderbilt, important to note, exactly the type of player that you can get into really thorny free agency. So he'll be unrestricted in 24 and is probably pretty close to unextendable just because of the way the, the CBA works. So if you don't think you can sign Vanderbilt to his next contract, you probably keep him for this year. But in the offseason or the trade deadline next year, you might make a move. You probably do try to sign him to a max mid-level extension, right? If you if can. You can if yeah. The I mean, to me, if you're a rotate, like, I mean, that's less money. Basically, it's probably actually pretty comparable to what Brandon Clark got. I like Jared Vanderbilt meaningfully better than Brandon Clark. Yeah. Uh, is there anyone else you want to talk about? We, we've kind of jumped around here. Uh, I'll just kind of give you the floor before we get out of here. Uh, not really. I mean, I think that the Bulls are, the, you brought up the Raptors as being the kind of the lead domino. And I think that's right. I think the Bulls are the second domino because of DeMar DeRozan. And a lot of these players have the, they ha, they can put their thumb on the scale a little bit in certain circumstances. DeRozan's not a pending free agent like Miles Turner is, but how much do they impact this situation? And then also, what kind of resources are the buyers willing to give up for non-premium players? Like, I really like Malik Beasley. I really like Alec Burks. He's had had a really interesting year for the Pistons so far. And there are a number of different players like that who make you better, but they don't make you that much better. What are the teams willing to give up for them? Because the asking price is probably going to be pretty high in most circumstances. And the value to the acquiring team in most circumstances is not huge. So that's uh, it's something that I'm trying to figure out for myself. And if I, you know, I take on the GM chair of of any team in the league. So those sorts of negotiations, the Malik Beasley's of the world, the Alec Burks's of the world, the Jacob Pertles of the world, those are the hardest ones for me to figure out. Yeah, like Alec Burks might end up being like one of the more valuable players to be moved based off of the way he's playing this year. (laughs) He's shooting like 44% from three and... You know, it's tacking closeouts and, you know, and has a team option, has a team option for 10.5 million for next year. And yeah, like you, you can really make a case that like he is very, very helpful for someone that needs real floor. Like if the Pelicans aren't able to go out and get Boyan Bogdanovich because they decide not to, like 
Alec Burks could actually help them. Like maybe not substantially, but like to a somewhat real level, just in terms of evening out their floor spacing and evening out their lineup constructions a little bit more uh, around Zion Williamson and some of the other stars they have. Yeah, we'll have to see. And and I brought up, you know, we talked about the Pelicans earlier. It's like, how much do some of these asset-rich teams, are they willing to do smaller moves? And yeah. especially the ones that have a little less salary flexibility, the Pelicans are basically right at the tax for next year. So those questions are going to loom large as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's hard. Like, if a team gave up multiple second-round picks for Alec Burks, that wouldn't surprise me. If a team gave up, you know, multiple second-round picks for a – honestly, like a Doug McDermott or something that wouldn't surprise me. Like there are, there are the one thing that there is a lot of on the market this year is shooting. It feels like if a team needs shooting cough, cough, Los Angeles Lakers, that is actually the one place where I think there is like a pretty reasonable supply and you might be able to swing something that makes sense for reasonable ish value. Unlike everything else that seems inflated cost wise. Yeah, it's a really good point, and we'll have to see where where all of that goes. Like our our teams will really willing to pay for it. The supply demand questions, as you brought up before, are there. And yeah, and the other consideration here is I brought up before taking on negative salary. There is there aren't that many bad contracts, like terrible contracts around the league right now. There will be soon enough, but right now there really <laughs> are not. And so that means one of the ways that trades often end up happening is less on the table right now. There could be stuff that materializes anyway, but there isn't a, there aren't the free agents because of the shift to extensions that teams are moving heaven and earth to get, but also there aren't the horrendous contracts that teams are moving heaven and earth to offload. And so that changes things a lot. All right, Danny, this has been fun. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. There, there are lots of places that you can find my work. I mean, audio form, it's Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, and Real GM Radio. Sam is a frequent guest there. Nate and I do five episodes a week. Real GM Radio is one. Then I write for The Athletic. Potentially, likely, some stuff with one Sam Vecini at some point in the near future. And then also, uh, the NBA Strategy Stream is a broadcast Nate and I do roughly once a week for League Pass. And in those circumstances, and so it's us calling the game and you can ask questions using the hashtag NBA strategy stream. It's a lot of fun. We did a really fun Bucks Knicks game yesterday. It's a, a dream for us to be able to do that. So that's enough for right now. Who knows if there are other things we can tell you about that in the future. That is fantastic, Danny. Go to The Athletic. I will have a mock draft coming out. It's now on Thursday. I can assure you guys it is Thursday in the United States. That mock draft will be out. Uh, what else? What else? Go subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash game theory. Keep me employed over there. Uh, we will have a podcast on Friday with Mark Schindler. We're going to be talking some sort of NBA stuff. Uh, then the Monday podcast slash Sunday night podcast with Adam Spinella will be a mock draft podcast where Spins and I go back and forth just, you know, picking players basically and diving deep into them and talking about them. So uh, keep it locked here. We have a lot of really fun stuff forthcoming on the show. Eventually, there will be trades that happen. I will also do breakdowns of trades once those happen. But, you know, we haven't had one yet, and we're halfway through the season. Uh, so, you know, shout out Noah Vonley, but I didn't feel like I needed to do a 30-minute stream for a, you know, cost-cutting measure by the Boston Celtics. Keep it locked here, though. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.